You're listening to Hebrews Jesus is Better series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, and then you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 21. We'll, we'll really spend most of our time there this morning. In God's kindness, our church calendar is that every, when things are normal, that every first Sunday of the month we have communion as a church family. And of course, this is the first Sunday of the month, and it just so happened that my text this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, and you'll understand the significance of that as soon as we read it this morning. Sorry about that. Something just came disconnected, Dan, but it's okay. I think I've got this covered. Okay. Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. Through faith, speaking of Moses, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So here we have, again, Moses acting in faith and by faith. Sorry, I got my stuff. This is, there we go. All right. Don't be nervous. I don't know what I'm doing. Thank you. Well, thank you that you understand that. So here's Moses, and by faith, he believed that God would do exactly what he said. He lays hold on God's promises in such a way that he is willing to stake his life on what God has said, and not only his life, but the lives of millions of Hebrew people. He never doubted that this event would be their liberation story. And so this morning, we're going to closely examine um, the Passover feast, uh, this Feast of Unleavened Bread, which now has been the longest-running religious festival, 3,500 years. The Jewish nation has been doing this. And at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, right before They've been doing this for a thousand years. Um, and so it's important for believers. The meaning of the Passover is indispensable for believers today. It helps us to connect the dots and fully understand what we're doing this morning as we partake of the communion service. So look at Matthew chapter 26, verse number 20, and we'll just read through to verse 29. Now when even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe unto the man of whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born." Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it 
and gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission or forgiveness of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, understand this morning that Jesus is going to partake in the Passover, and, and the Passover today is somewhat different than it was back then, right? We're talking about almost 2,000 years removed. It was very simplistic, and yet it still had the same format of the blessing of the four cups. And so here the disciples have gathered, and, and honestly, it's a strange week. Because two days prior to this, Jesus says, hey, I am going to be crucified. And it's as if the disciples aren't placing this all together. So they come together. There's a festive mood because of the Passover. They're sitting there. Jesus takes the first cup and blesses it, something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. And so they drink. And then he says this as he looks at the twelve. One of you will betray me. And they're shocked. I mean, you talk about ruining a party. Here they are. And Jesus flatly says, one of you will betray me. And they start asking him, is it me? Am I the one? And what's ironic about that statement is, we know it's Judas who betrays him. But in the garden, every one of them would leave him. And so they have the first cup. Jesus drops this bomb, and then the next event is the dipping of the karpas. Uh, it's interesting. Hebrew scholars um, debate on what this means. It was the time when you took like a piece of lettuce, and you dipped it in this salty liquid, and then you ate it. But many of them believe that this is actually to remind them of the story of Joseph, to which the Exodus story begins. If you remember the story... Here is Israel, who has 12 sons, and the 11th one is his favorite, by far. So much so, he has special clothes to wear. And his brothers despise him. And one day, his brothers are out in the field, and, and Israel says to Joseph, go find your brothers, check up on them. And as he's coming to see them, they see him afar, and they say, here comes that dreamer, let's kill him. But in an act of benevolence and kindness, they don't kill him. They instead sell him into slavery. They take his coat of many colors. They shred it apart and take the blood of a lamb and stain the jacket with that blood. They take it back to his father and they say, hey, we don't know. Is this your son's coat? Wanting him to believe that Joseph is dead. And so they take the dipping of the carpas and they dip it in the salty liquid and they put it into their mouth. And the taste of the salt, if you've ever bitten your lip, it's salty, it's mineral, it's that blood. And it reminds them that this is where the story of the Exodus begins because Joseph is sold into slavery. Then they would go to the Torah, the teaching, and they would recount the entire story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph thinking he was dead and now a famine in the land of Canaan. And so in desperation, Israel sends his sons down. And to their amazement, after a number of events, they realize that Jacob or Joseph is truly alive. And of course, they're terrified at this thought. 
And in one of the most beautiful stories in the Old Testament, Joseph says, I forgive you. God had a plan. God had a purpose. He brought me here to save your life. And you meant it for evil. But God meant all of this for good. And so they come to Egypt. They're saved. They prosper. They explode in population. And a new pharaoh comes on the scene. And and with this increase, he sees Israel now as a threat to national security. And so he devises a plan to bring them under hard labor. They become slaves. They work and they sweat and they labor as slaves. But it doesn't work. These people continue to multiply. And so, he thinks, we've got to take care of these males. And so he tells the Hebrew midwives, as the Hebrew children are born, if they're males, kill them. And they don't. They honor God and they they disobey And Pharaoh asks them why, and they say, well, the Hebrew women are different. You know how that goes. And somehow he buys that. And then he says to the people of Egypt, and remember, he is the son of a God as far as they're concerned. He says to his population, when you see a Hebrew child, throw him in the river. You know, through my life, I've read over that, and I think I've just passed over that. Not understanding that it's quite possible that a whole generation of little Hebrew boys were murdered. One after another. And the children of Abraham cry out. They cry out for the injustice. They cry out for the pain. They cry out for the suffering. And Yahweh, the great I Am, the God of the Hebrews, hears their cry which reminds us this morning that our God hears the cry of those who suffer injustice. All those who suffer injustice. He hears the cry of his people. He knows he's concerned and he will act. And so he acts. And he raises up Moses. He says to Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, Yahweh has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh? Get out of my face. And so, in an act of ten, acts of justice, the exodus will take place. It is a story of liberation, of freedom, of deliverance, and redemption. And so they they dip the carpas, they tell the story, and then they raise the second cup. The blessing is given again. And it was customary then to read Psalm 113, which is the first psalm in the list of the great Hallel. And they would read it talking about God and who he is and his deliverance. And next came the unleavened bread. And so you know, I think, the story of the unleavened bread. God said, on this night you will be cast out of Egypt. Have your shoes on, your bags packed, ready to go. And so they had their bread in the troughs for kneading it, and and yet uh, they left in such a hurry that the bread didn't rise. And so the next meal they had was unleavened bread, a flat cake, because of the manner in which they left. And so now they they take the bread, and, and Matthew says Jesus grabs it, and he blesses it, and he breaks it. And then he does something that is astounding. Remember, for a thousand years... Jews have been gathering together 
taking this bread, understanding what it meant in their history for their suffering that night. And Jesus says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And I have to think, sitting there in this room, hearing that would be so bizarre. It's like, what, what are you doing? I'm sure looking back after that night, they would think of the process of bread, how it is worked and kneaded, and then cast into a furnace. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that his body would be broken, that it would be spit upon, it would be smacked and beaten and hit. He would be scourged and whipped and pierced. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. But not just the process of bread, the purpose itself. That bread in in this culture and many cultures today is life. It is life-giving. And Jesus is saying that this broken body of mine will produce life. And in somehow, some way, spiritually eating of this body of mine will bring life and will sustain my people. And so they share the bread, the unleavened bread. Next is the bitter herbs. And it could be as simple as shredded horseradish. I don't know if you've ever just had pure shredded horseradish. If you eat it, it will make you cry. And that's the point. The point is they would share these bitter herbs and they would think about the misery and the bitterness and the death that their ancestors faced at the hand of Pharaoh. And so they would weep over that condition. But, but for the, the Israelites, it wasn't just Pharaoh. They had a history of bitterness and brokenness, sometimes by their own kings and leaders, and certainly now under the Romans. And I think this morning... That bitter herb should remind us as well of the brokenness of this life. This world's broken. It's broken. And we are broken. We're broken. And so we should weep over the brokenness of this world. And we should weep over the brokenness of our own lives. This is a good reminder for them. And next comes the lamb. And and you, you must remember now, if you've not heard anything yet, you need to listen now and remember the meaning of the lamb. This was the last judgment for Egypt. And in this judgment, God says, the firstborn of Egypt will die. And again, you should stop for a moment and think of the horror of this judgment. This this week I was just contemplating this thought. And I am the firstborn in my family. So is my wife. And so is AJ. And in my home, on that night, the judgment was set that the firstborn would die. We would lose three In one stroke, God would match Pharaoh's evil killing when he killed every 
Jewish boy. It's an act of poetic justice, actually. But understand that God provided something that Pharaoh never offered. A way to escape. They didn't have to die. God provided a way. And they were to take one innocent lamb. To have it in their home, actually, like a pet leading up to this. To examine it, to see it, to, to become attached to it. And they would gather together in their families or with their neighbors and community. And they would slit its throats. They would eat the lamb. But they would take the blood of the lamb and they would post it on their doors, on the top and on the sides. And through the death of this lamb, somehow, some way, God takes out his righteous justice on evil. And for some of you, that may trouble you, but listen to me. If we have a God who doesn't care about injustice, and a God who doesn't care about evil, and is not disturbed by what's happening, and what human beings do to other human beings, about the brokenness and the evil of this world, then we have a God who is not worth worshiping. We have a God of love and a God of justice. Who will deal with all evil? All of it. All of it. And yet, through the death of this lamb, not only does he take out his righteous justice, but he provides a way of escape. And for us in our mind, this is, this is bizarre for us, and maybe we don't understand this, but you go through the book of Leviticus, and time after time, there's a sacrifice. I sinned, I blew it, take an innocent lamb, and you think, what's going on here? But the life of the flesh is in the blood, and our sins against one another and ultimately against the God of heaven, the soul that sins should die. And so what God has designed that somehow, through the innocent shedding of the life of another, the one who is guilty goes free. And so, they partake in the Lamb. And what I find interesting about this text, and all the Gospel accounts, this is the Passover. The, um, the Rabbi Gamaliel said this, In order to truly celebrate the Passover, you need three things. You need the unleavened bread, you need the bitter herb, and you need, of course, the Passover lamb. But as you read the account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is no mention of a lamb. None. And I don't know if they just left it out, what was happening, but I do know this. Although the lamb was not mentioned, he was there. He was there. And so, at this point... Instead of having a lamb, Jesus takes the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he blesses the cup. And if these disciples were shocked at what he was doing with the symbolism of the bread, listen to what he says when he takes this cup. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this is astounding. This blood of the Passover lamb, which redeemed Israel, which called them out, which birthed a nation, which brought them under, a, a, at that time, a covenant with God that made them uh, his people. What Jesus will do will seal a new covenant people. 
by absorbing the consequences of their evil and their sin by his own blood. He's rescuing his people. And what he has just done has taken the symbolism of a thousand years for them and said everything that you saw and experienced and was symbolized in this feast, all of it, all of it points to me. I am the Passover lamb, and I will rescue my people as the lamb rescued the Hebrews from slavery. Jesus Christ rescues the world from the slavery of sin and the fear of death. And because of his sacrifice this morning, listen to me, nobody has to die. Judgment will fall. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be saved, safe and saved. And amen to that. Beep to that. That's a good thing. Jesus Christ was telling them, I'm going to rescue my people. But this story and symbolism also roots God's people. God is so wise. This feast going on for a thousand years, and now 3,500 years, is designed to make people stop and to think and to root them once again in who they are. And when we come together as believers, as a community, and we take the bread and we take the cup, we are once again rooted and reminded that we are the people of God. We are the new covenant people. And in a world that tries to tell us who we are and how to find identity, the word of God already tells us. And so we take the bread and we take the cup and we once again this month, we root ourselves and understand that we are the people of God who have been rescued by God, who are saved, born again, redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, for Jesus, during this evening, this was not the end. And after he makes this astounding statement about the, the glory of his blood and his life being given to others, he says, I will not drink it again until the day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom, in my Father's kingdom. He was looking to the other side. There's a fourth cup, and Jesus does not take it. After this, we're told they went out, and they sang a hymn. They went out. They finished the great Hallel, 114 to 118. But Jesus says, this fourth cup, this cup of praise, this cup of blessing, this cup that we will praise he said, I'm telling you something. I'm not taking it now because there is coming a day when I will take it with you, the twelve. And those who came after them, you and I, and we will drink that cup anew with our Savior in our Father's kingdom when he comes to rule and reign. This morning we're reminded that we have been rescued that we are rooted, we are the people of God, and that Jesus Christ will return to reign and make everything right. This is our story, and this is what we do this morning. And so as we come, thank God for the story of the Passover. It, it helps us understand the significance of what we're doing this morning. 
But let me just pause and, and, and help you a little bit as we get ready to partake of the cup. I don't know what tradition you've come from and how you view this time. But growing up my entire life, we would come to a time like this. And of course, 1 Corinthians 11 would be read. And if you remember, Paul makes a statement in verse 27. He says this, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He actually talks about drinking damnation or judgment to yourself. And as a kid, every time that we came to communion, I would hear those words. And it wasn't a time of rejoicing and celebration. It was a time of great turmoil. Because I would think to myself, oh Lord, I'm not worthy of this. I would just review my life over that week, last week or the last month or even that day. And there were times I just let the cup pass me because of that. But let me remind you of something this morning. All scripture has a context. And we must remember who Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to the church of Corinth. The, the whole chapter 11 is about this. And he says, I, I, I can't commend you. You're doing something here that's really problematic. And, and in their culture... Um, the early church would meet in homes, and so the wealthiest folks had larger homes, and they would meet, and there'd be a, a section in the center that was somewhat like a, a living room area, but it was smaller. And so what would happen in the church of Corinth is that believers, right, rich, poor, free, slave, would meet on a Sunday. It wasn't a day off. They'd come after work. But the wealthy then would, would come early, and they would just feast. I mean, they would gorge themselves in this church. Some of them would get drunk. And by the time the day laborers came, or the slaves who were part of this body of believers, they would come for nothing. Nothing. Hungry, weary, tired, and worn. And not even to come in the inner room to stay outside. And Paul says to them, I don't know what you're doing, but this is not the body of Christ. He, a matter of fact, he says this. He says, um, what? Uh, have you not your houses to eat and drink in? Um, you despise the church of God, and you shame them that have not. And so when he's talking to this church, he is talking to these people who couldn't care less about other believers, who were hungry, weary, and pushed to the outside of their services. And he says to them, don't you dare take this. Until you're made right. Because what you're doing is despising the church of God. And you're shaming living souls who are brothers and sisters. And so, I know that many of you are like me. And we'll come to the time of this communion service. And we'll open it up. Or we'll think about it. And you will say, ah, I blew it this week. Ah, I, I just, I'm not worthy. Or the last you know, seven days, I got into the word once. Or this morning, in your car, on the way here, you already got in a fight with your spouse or your kids. Or when someone told you to back up and straighten it out, you already had an attitude and you think, oh my goodness, I am unworthy. Here's the point of this cup. And here's the point of the text. We're all unworthy. That's the whole point 
of this meal. It's a reminder to us that the cup and the bread shouts to the sinner, you are loved, you are accepted, you are purchased, you are redeemed. This is who you are. It reminds us of our desperate need of forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation, not just today at communion, but every day and every day after. The cup and the bread offer us hope this morning. And I submit to you, brother and sister in Christ, if this morning you feel like you blew it last week, or this month has not been good, or even this morning you have a sense like, oh God, I blew it again, then of all times, this is the time to take it and to rejoice in it. And glory in a God who loves you and cares for you and took on flesh and shed his blood. God is for you, not against you. He loves you. He knows our framework, but that we are dust. And yet, as far as the east is from the west, he will remember our sins no more. We come humbly to the cup. We come humbly to the bread. And we should come with the Spirit certainly of adoration and humility and reverence. But this morning, we should come with joy and praise that He is the bread of life who was broken for us and His blood was shed. He stepped into my place and though my sins were many, His mercy was so much more. And so this morning, brother and sister in Christ, as we come to the table... Let us connect the dots. Let us see the glory of what Christ did. After a thousand years of ceremony and symbols, he says, stop. All of it, all of it points to me. Yahweh once again has heard the cry of his people, and he has delivered them. And so let us rejoice in the goodness and the glory of what we do this morning. And if you're here without Jesus Christ, and every day you beat yourself up because you know you. You know your brokenness. You know your sin. You know that you've fallen short of God's glory and perfection. Then let today be the day in your seat that you call upon the name of Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He will not turn you away. He will accept you. And for those of us who know him, who also know that we are still broken, may we come and glory in this truth this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for this text. I thank you for the beauty of the Passover and what it meant to the ancient Jew. Lord, help the ones who do it today to see the cup of redemption, that the Messiah has come. He lived, he died, was buried, and yet he, he rose again and is coming again. Help them to see clearly who Christ is. And Lord, help us as your people to glory in your love and your sacrifice. And Lord, to take this cup and to take this bread, knowing that we will never be worthy of you, never. And yet, at the same time, we are the apple of your eye. And so, Lord, I pray that you bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.